All right. With that, I think the only way to really make a transition is to talk about something that everybody in this service, although this is probably why it's a little more empty, but uh, how many of you are football fans? Football fans in the room, huh? I take it your team is not playing at this time slot today. Is that the... And this is, again, pure curiosity. How many of you played football in high school? Yeah? Anybody play in college? Anybody play after college? No? All right. It was worth a shot. I was just curious. Well, the reason I bring this up is uh, I like football. I'm a fan of football. I, you know, when it's on, I enjoy watching it. I'm not a religious nut. I don't really have a team. I don't like go out of my way to watch football. But when it's on, I really enjoy watching it. But one of the things that I really enjoy about the football game isn't even really a part of the game at all. It's that part uh, before the game when they send the cameras into the locker room. You know what I'm talking about? And you got the coach standing there, and he's always got a clipboard. Always got a clipboard. And everybody else is kind of kneeling around him for this pregame pep talk, right? They're always kneeling, and my pants are too tight to kneel, but they're kneeling. <laughs> and the coach is standing there, and he's like, and we're going to take it today. We're going to run that football, and we're going to pass it, and we're going to win. And everybody kneeling is like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then by the end, they're like, yeah! And they storm out of the room, and they take the field. I love that. I love that. But you know what I would love to watch more, and I've never seen them do this, and I don't know why. I wanted to take that same camera crew, and I wanted to send them back during halftime to the losing team's locker room. I've just always wondered, like, what is going on? Especially, you know, the coach on the field. You ever watch that interview? Like, the coach is going back after the team's getting their butts kicked, and the coach is like, like, what does he say when he gets into the locker room? You ever wonder about this? Like, is he going to stand there and he's going to go in? He's going to be like, you're a failure. You're a failure. You're a failure. Like, is that what he does? Or does he get the pep talk? Like, all right, we're going to take him and we're going to win. Or is it more like pastoral? Does he come alongside Jimmy Graham and rub his shoulder and go, come on. You've got this, buddy. That was a big hit, but you can do this. Drew Brees, come on, slugger. You can, you can win this for us. Like, I, I, what, what does he do in there? And I, I've just always wondered this. And the reason I bring it up is uh, I got the call yesterday to, to preach this passage. So I started reading through this passage. Um, and as I was reading through the passage, I just kind of got this image of Peter giving us this like halftime pep, time, pep, pep talk report, right? So the church is coming into the locker room. They're beat up. They're exhausted at this phase. And Peter is going to look at them and give them the message to get them back on the field. That's what we're going to see today. And the reason I think Peter's giving the halftime pep talk report is, if we think about it, Jesus kind of gives the pregame. That whole uh, Great Commission thing. Everybody, like, here's Jesus give the Great Commission. They're like, yeah, let's go do that. Let's go. And then you got John in Revelation 22 kind of ruining, it, ruining the game with the post-game report. And he goes, and Jesus returned, and we all won. And you're like, yeah, we won. Cool. But where Peter comes into the thing is Peter comes to his church as they are in the midst of the game. Peter comes to the church as the church is continuing to expand outward rapidly, but with every step of expansion faces increased persecution. It's at this point, they're just getting their butts handed to them. They're wiped. They're exhausted. They're suffering persecution on immense scales. And they don't know what to do, and so they come into the locker room. And Peter's got a message for them, and he's going to tell them three things today. First, he's going to tell them, 
Suffering is inevitable. And at this point, you look at Peter and go, you are the worst coach I have ever had. <laughs> it's like going to the doctor and they're like, this shot is really going to hurt. You want it? You're like, no, I don't want that. What's wrong with you? But that's what Peter starts with. Suffering is inevitable. But there's a right way to respond to suffering. There's a right way to respond to suffering. And that right way will bring about a righteous vindication. It will pay off in the end. And the reason we know this is true is Peter is lastly going to point to Jesus. He's going to show us an example from the life of Jesus where him as a righteous man died at the hands of unjust circumstances, but in the end was vindicated. So that's what we're going to see today. So with that, will you open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? We're going to look at verses 13 to 22. Again, we're in 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 13 to 22. If you hit 2 Peter, you went too far. Um, and it is page 851 on your pew Bibles. So again, 1 Peter chapter 3. Before I read, let me just again summarize what we're going to see. Peter's going to tell us that suffering is inevitable, but there's a right way to respond to suffering. And what we're going to see is that right way comes with a right understanding of who God is. And when we rightly understand who God is, it will shape the way we live. It will shape the way we interact. It will shape the way we speak. It will shape the way we respond to whatever comes our way. And then we're going to see Peter point us to, um, to the life of Jesus. And I'm just going to tell you, there's a whole chunk here, verses 19 to 21, that you're going to be like, what? Okay, it's a little confusing. It's really hard to track. Um, but we'll get to it. So just hold with me. When you get to that point, try and stick with the big picture. Look at verses 18 and 22. 19 to 21 will make sense in the end. Okay? Actually, they probably won't make sense in the end, but we'll get to that. Verses 13 to 22. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason uh, for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for the sins of uh, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and all the powers in the world in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said, we're going to see three things. 
Okay, first, suffering's inevitable, but there's a right way to respond to it. And then Peter points us to Jesus as the example of how righteous living leads to righteous vindication. All right, so let's take these one by one. First, suffering is inevitable. Peter starts in verse 13 by saying, I shouldn't have closed my Bible. He doesn't say that, I said that. Uh, Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And you read that and you're like, yeah, that's a good question. Who would do such a thing? Who's going to harm me for being a nice guy? Right? Everybody loves the nice guy. And then he follows it in 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, and you go, dang. Some people are going to persecute you even if you do the good thing. You're blessed. Even if you suffer for what is right. I just kind of want to pause before we even go a little deeper because we kind of have to address an issue here. I think it's passages like this that make 1 Peter one of the most difficult books in the, the Bible for an American audience. I think it's, it's one of those books that we just really struggle with because it is not at all like our world. When we look around, this, it doesn't line up. For instance, we spent three to four weeks talking about various submission passages. We're Americans. We don't submit. America number one, right? Like we don't, submission is hard for us. And now we're going to talk about suffering. It, it, it rarely matches up with most of us. I mean, when we look at our lives, we go, we're just not suffering. And when we come across passages like this, our, my reaction, and I'm assuming your reaction along with me, is to zone out. To be like, all right, well, that's nice. I'll wait till, it's a, I'll wait till it talks to me. But I think where we, we need to understand is this, this does apply to us. But, but first, before we understand how it applies to us, we need to recognize that for our brothers and sisters all around the world, especially in Iraq, Syria, Egypt, China, North Korea, Palestine, you name it, they're facing such immense persecution, such immense suffering, that when they go to the book of Peter, when they turn to Peter, they can't put it down. Peter is such a source of encouragement, hope, grace, love, joy, and more importantly than anything else, a roadmap to explain why the world is the way it is for our brothers and sisters that are suffering. Because here's the thing, our brothers and sisters that are suffering are facing things far beyond teasing that we may face. They're facing daily Daily, threats to their life, threats to their family's life, the, the, the loss of jobs, the loss of, of their churches being burned down, their houses being burned down, their families kicking them out, wanting nothing to do with them, because all, all because they profess Christ to be king. Immense, immense threats, immense suffering, immense persecution. And, I, and the big thing for them is it's just shameful and dangerous to be a Christian where they are. The same as the world that Peter writes. It's shameful and dangerous to be a Christian. And it's for those reasons when we read this, we're like, that is not my world at all. But it, you know, and it, it's kind of shameful to be a Christian, but it's not dangerous. It's just not. Now, I, I want to be clear before I go any further that I fully recognize there are people in this room that are struggling. There are people in this room that are facing persecution, that are overwhelmed at the circumstances of life, that because of their faith are being hindered in some way. And it's, it's becoming a burden. Maybe, maybe you're a student, and because you're a student, people harass you for your faith. They think you're ignorant. They think you're stupid for what you believe. I face this. 
People, they, they tear you down. How can you believe such a thing? What's wrong with you? You're an educated person. What, what, and you just feel dumb. You turn on the TV, everybody else makes you feel dumb. That's, that's a form of persecution, absolutely. But I think there's also people in this room that may be facing some kind of financial persecution brought on because at work, they're facing some sort of pressure for being a Christian. Maybe they're promoted uh, or they're, they're hindered from a promotion because they, uh, they, they won't break some ethical boundaries that the company needs them to do. They won't fudge the numbers. They, they won't just kind of ignore a problem. They won't sweep it under the rug. They won't lie on a report. And because of that, their bosses know they're too ethical, so they're not going to promote them to the other places. And in doing so, it hinders their family financially. I recognize there are people in this room that are facing persecution. And, and I want to be clear, I am not trying to belittle our circumstances at all. I'm not trying to belittle you. And in fact, that's where Peter is going to speak profoundly to you. As we continue in Peter and the suffering passages over the next couple weeks, I just encourage you to soak and sit in it, read in it, use it as your devotional time. Hear what Peter says, because our brothers and sisters around the world, that's what they do. And they've found a lot of wisdom and a lot of hope and a lot of encouragement in this book. But for the rest of us, those of us who are not struggling, those of us who, who are not facing persecution on a regular basis, get ready for it. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the world is going to continue to spiral out of control. We already look around at the world around us in America, and America is no longer the tolerant Christian nation it once was. I don't mean this with any political bent whatsoever. But the truth is, when you look out there, being a Christian, holding Christian values, it, it's, not, it's not the good thing anymore. Um, pastor Rick Warren, uh, the pastor at, at Saddleback Church, was invited a couple weeks ago to the Vatican um, for a, a summit on like marriage and family and things like that. Uh, while there, he was interviewed by somebody about uh, his views on gay marriage. And Pastor Rick, if you read the transcript, gives an awesome Christian defense of why Christians are not for gay marriage. He comes out and says something to the effect of, I'm not homophobic. I don't, I don't hate gay people. I don't fear gay people. I love gay people, and they're absolutely welcome at my church. But then he says, but the Bible makes it clear that heterosexual union is, is God's preferred method. Gay marriage is not God's intended design. And as a pastor, I'm not going to stand there and go, God's wrong. And that was all he said. It was very respectful, very loving, very caring. It, it wasn't rude at all. It was picked up back at home, the article, and he was lambasted for his position. Just torn apart. How can he do this? And they're saying things he didn't say. Oh, he's homophobic. He clearly said he wasn't homophobic. But here's the thing. The, the tolerance for having a, a different opinion, for differing views, it's just going out the window, guys. And that's just the beginning. It's going to get worse. And I don't mean this to be a, like, chicken little. The sky is falling. I don't mean that. It's just what the Bible tells us. It's going to continue to get worse. And we have an opportunity to respond to it. Those of us who are in it and those of us who are about to be in it have to respond to it in some way. And that's what Peter's going to talk to us about. And he's going to tell us, don't fear it. Don't whine it. Don't whine about it. Don't complain about it. Recognize it's coming. Deal with it. And now he's going to tell us how. All right? And Peter's going to show us the way we deal with this is twofold. One, we have to have a right understanding of who God is. 
Peter says we are in our hearts to revere Christ as Lord. That just means have a right understanding of who God is. And when we rightly understand who God is, that will compel us to live appropriately. We won't have to live out of some ugly defensiveness. We won't have to live out of some ways like, oh, I got to stand up for Jesus. No, you don't have to stand up for Jesus because you're going to understand who Jesus is. You don't get walked over, Peter's going to talk about. But at the same time, you, you take comfort in knowing who Jesus is. It brings about a confidence within us. And when we have that confidence, we can continue to live with a clear conscience. We can continue to live in such a way that when people look at our actions and they harass us for our actions, they look like the idiots. We don't look like the idiots. So that's what we're going to see Peter talk about. Uh, let's start in 14. We open up again with me to uh, 414 here. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Suffering is inevitable, but here's what you can do about it. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. I think this is the key to the whole passage, this verse. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And when you do this, do it with gentleness and respect so that you keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Suffering is inevitable, but there's a right way to respond to it. And that right way comes when we rightly understand who God is. As I was prepping for this message, I tried to spend a little more time thinking about, okay, well, who, who is Christ? What do we know to be true of him? And I, I wish I had a little more time to reflect on this, and I'll share a little bit how this is kind of my kairos um, as I was prepping this message. But these are some of the things I just kind of came to understand about who Christ is, how the scriptures reveal Christ to be, okay? And think about them and think about how this should shape the way you live. He is the eternal one, the alpha and the omega, the one who was, who is, and who always will be. He is the creator of the universe. He is the commander of heaven's armies. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has no equal. He is the compassionate savior that went to the cross on our behalf. He is the one who defeated death. And he is the one who sits at the right hand of God and who will come again soon to judge the living and the dead. He is the one that is in absolute control, the sovereign one we call him. He is the one who understands our weakness and has compassion on the needy. And he is the one who does not allow evil or injustice to go unpunished because he is the just one. When we rightly understand who Jesus is, Peter's point is this, how, how can it not affect the way we live? When we rightly understand who Jesus is, who is left to fear? What is left to fear? I mean, doesn't Peter or Paul himself say, we are more than conquerors in Christ? We've overcome everything because of what Christ has done for us and through us. And because of this, there should be a boldness. There should be a confidence that comes up from within us. We understand who our Lord is. And because we understand who our Lord is, it should shape the way we live should shape the way we speak. It should shape the way we act and the way we respond to whatever comes our way. But this confident, bold assurance should not be something um, 
I got lost in my notes. Oh, that should lead to ugly defensiveness. Peter makes this a little clearer as well. When he, when he talks about in verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Too often, Christians defend Jesus, our beliefs, out of insecurity. And we do so with anger, we do so with yelling. This is just how Christians respond. But if we really get to the root of it, it's, it's not because we feel like, oh, we got to stand up for Jesus. No, it's because our beliefs are threatened. And we're insecure about it. And so how do you win an argument? I've been married for five years. I know how you win an argument. You yell. <laughs> and, you, and you yell louder than the other person. Right? Isn't that what we've been taught all along as children too? That's what you're supposed to do? It's when you become insecure, you do this? But Peter says it should not breed a sense of insecurity. Peter says when we rightly understand who Jesus is, it should bring us a great confidence so that we don't have to yell. We don't have to rely on our yelling abilities or how well we articulate a defense of the gospel. We don't have to defend Jesus' teachings. We don't have to defend the way we live because we understand who the king is. Instead, out of the confidence that we have, Peter encourages us to speak with humility to speak with gentleness, and to speak with respect. This gentleness, respect, and humility should also affect the way we live, Peter talks about. When Peter says, uh, Peter says that we are to live in a way that trusts the Lord is who he says he is. When we rightly understand who Jesus is, we understand who he is. And it should impact the way we live. It should under, we should understand that the life he offers us is the very best life. There is no comparison. And that any unjust suffering we may endure, he is capable of taking care of himself. And he promises to do so because he cannot tolerate injustice. And therefore, in the end, we will be vindicated. So today, we are to continue to live with a clear conscience and continue to love those who persecute us. Our job is to remain faithful no matter what comes our way. We don't have to worry about proving anything to anybody. We're freed up to live good lives, lives that honor the king. We're freed up to live righteously. And because we're freed up to live righteously, we can expect a righteous vindication when the Lord returns. Now, I get that this may still seem a little confusing, so let me try another direction on this. So you come to Peter... Pretend you're in his little huddle at the, uh, the halftime report here and you've just gotten your butts handed to you. You're exhausted. You come in and you go, Peter, I'm suffering. And he responds with, do good. I'm telling you, Peter is the worst halftime coach. <laughs> <laughs> do good. But if you think about what Peter is saying, he's giving very practical advice. Very helpful, very practical advice because here's what he's doing. He looks out at his churches. He looks out at the sufferings they're facing, the injustices they're facing. He looks out and recognizes their families, their lives, their livelihood is all being threatened, all because they profess Christ. And so Peter speaks a word of encouragement to them. He reminds them, remember who Jesus is. Remember he's the just one. Remember he's the faithful one. Remember he's the good one. He has not abandoned you. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. Hold to him. And when you understand that, Recognize that he will return soon and he will take care of this. In the meantime, live well. Don't give people an excuse to persecute you. Don't give people a reason to say, you're an idiot. Peter recognizes that when your family's attacked, when your livelihood's attacked, your natural inclination is to fight back. And he goes, no, no, hold on, hold on. Don't, don't do it. It's just gonna create more problems. Don't fight back right now. Stand up for yourself, sure. 
Uh, he's not saying just give in. He's not saying that at all. But he's saying don't cause more trouble. Okay, don't give them a reason to say, see, this is why you're a bad person. You attack me, I attack your family. Don't do that. Don't do that. And here's why. If you respond with negative response, if you respond to injustice with injustice, when the Lord comes back, there's nothing to vindicate. There's nothing to prove right. You already ruined your credibility. And so Peter says, wait on the Lord. Wait. He'll take care of it. He will vindicate you. He will prove you right. Just hold the line. And so to prove his point, Peter points us to Jesus. And to prove his point, Peter's going to show us that the life of Jesus proves, demonstrates that, that a righteous man who suffered unjustly was, was later vindicated. And in the so, same way as Jesus was later vindicated, so too will we be vindicated. Now, before I read it, I want to clarify again. Verses 19 to 21, super confusing. Did you catch that as we read it? Peter starts out talking about the death of Christ. Okay, he starts out by talking about the death of Christ. And then he moves to this idea that Jesus preached to the imprisoned spirits. And then he connects that to the flood narrative and how the flood somehow connects to our baptism today, which connects to the resurrection, which connects to the ascension of Jesus. It's, it's a weird, confusing narrative. And here's what I know about this is scholars kind of go back and forth as to what he's talking about. Okay, there's a lot of opinions. What I know is this is where we get that line out of the Apostles' Creed when it says Jesus descended to hell and then three days rose again. This is the only spot in the Bible where it comes from. And it's not even clear that that's what happens. Okay, there's a lot of interpretation on this. But what we're going to see in this is, well, more importantly, we can usually easily, when we read this, get lost in the mechanics of what's going on. We can get lost in all the nuances of Peter's argument, and we, we miss the forest through the trees, if you will. What, what Peter wants us to understand is verse 18 and 22, where Jesus died unjustly. A righteous man suffered for the unrighteous, but later was vindicated when he was, when he was uh, placed at the right hand of God the Father. So as we read, look at that with me, okay? We're going to read verse 17 on, because uh, 17 kind of summarizes what we've been looking at. So 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, uh, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Even there, you kind of get this glimpse of vindication. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. This heightened state. It's going to get confusing. Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. It only had a few people, eight in all, uh, who were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God. 
That's vindication. This man that lost everything, this man that that was unjustly persecuted, this man that suffered on behalf of the unrighteous is vindicated in the end when he is ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Okay? So Peter's point in all of this is this. Suffering is inevitable, but there's a right way to respond to it, and we know that right way works. Suffering is inevitable. There's a right way to respond to it. If we rightly understand who God is, that should shape the way we live. And if we live righteously, if we live rightly, if we live in such a way that people cannot find fault with us, when the Lord returns, we will be righteously vindicated. Righteously proved right. There's a lot of rights in there. Now, I wish I had more time to to chew on this message. Um, this is the one thing I, I really feel like is lacking a lot in this message is I just wish I had the time to kind of sit and stew in it. And I imagine if you ask me what my thoughts on this sermon are a couple days from now, I'll probably have some deeper thoughts than I have right now. Um, but as I was thinking about this, like for instance, I, I know this somehow this message connects to what's going on in our country with, with the Ferguson stuff and the Eric Garner stuff all the riots that are going on. I know this message speaks to that, but I'm struggling to figure out how exactly. Um, Maybe it's something you can continue to chew on too and let me know if you've got some connection points to that. But the one thing that kind of hit me as I was wrestling with this, because I kind of had a Kairos card, uh, a Kairos moment, uh, as I was chewing on this, um, it's a little tangential, but it goes back to verse 15 and this idea that we are to, in our hearts, set apart Christ as Lord revere him as Lord. And I just started thinking about Christmas. I started thinking about Advent. I started thinking about the fact that Jesus, you know, we celebrate the birth of Jesus in a couple weeks, and, um, you know, we got all the decorations up. If you come to our house, all the decorations are up. Um, We've done a good job buying gifts, and when I say we, my wife has done a good job buying gifts. Um, And the Christmas music's been playing a lot at our house. So we're in the Christmas spirit, (laughs) if you will, but when I look around or when I think about my, my own schedule and the way I've thought about this is I have not spent really any time thinking about Christmas. And what I mean by that is the, the fact that Jesus came to dwell among us in flesh to show us what it means to live and, to, to, and that ultimately he went to the cross on our behalf because in the manger we see the cross. Like I just haven't really thought about that. I've been doing my devotionals in the Old Testament more looking at who God is. And so my kairos in the midst of this was that I just kind of need to slow down as we're in the midst of this Advent season and be a little more overwhelmed or a little more um, aware of the Christmas season, a little more aware of who Jesus is. That's what it looks like to revere Christ in my heart. So my action plan on this whole thing uh, is for the next week or two, I don't know how long, I'm going to switch my devotional schedule up a little. Uh, I've been going through First and Second Kings because I'm weird. I I know nobody does that for fun. I do. Um, And I'm going to kind of switch it to the first uh, couple chapters of Matthew and the first couple chapters of Luke and then probably spend a little more time reflecting on the the cross narratives um, and the fact that, you know, Jesus, especially in Luke, where, you know, it talks about Jesus uh, was born 
to die, or in John when he talks about, the, look, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the world. Those kind of narratives, I just want to spend a little more time reflecting on who God is, how he reveals himself to be, because out of understanding who God is, out of understanding who God reveals himself to be, um, Peter makes it clear that that will shape the way we live. So I don't know if you're anything like me. I don't know if you spent a lot of time prepping for Christmas or reflecting on Christmas, but that's just kind of how it hit me, is what it looks like to revere Christ as Lord. Um, but my encouragement is we've got a rest of the service, about 30 minutes left, um, and the kids go, no! Um, about 30 minutes left, and my just encouragement to you is take this Kairos card that's in your bulletin. It's got two questions. What's God saying to me? What am I going to do about it? And I just encourage you to take this space, this quiet space, this reflective space, to just pray and to talk to the Lord. If you don't want to repeat the words on the screen, don't repeat the words on the screen. If you don't want to sing, don't sing. If you don't want to take communion today, don't take communion today. Okay? This is a space for you and the Lord to connect. However, you and the Lord need to connect. But my encouragement is just reflect. He may be saying something to you out of this passage. He may just be trying to get something else across to you today. But take that space. And if you want, I would love to hear your Kairos moments at the end of service. I'll be standing at the door. I would love to hear how the Lord's speaking to you. Um, that would just encourage, you have no idea how much that would encourage me to hear me, me to hear you. But in the meantime, will you pray with me uh, as the band kind of heads back up and then we'll do our offering. Father, I thank you for today and I thank you for this time that we get to come and to worship and to be your people. Lord, I thank you for the words of Peter. I thank you for the, the encouraging pep talk that he is able to give us today. And Lord, as I, as I read it, as I reflect on it, as I pray right now, Lord, I am reminded of the fact that there are people within our community who are suffering. People who are facing immense persecution, be it financial, family, uh, or just social anxieties. Because they profess your son to be king. Lord, I pray that you would bless them today. Lord, I pray that you would give them a sense of hope as you, as you talk about here. Lord, that they would come to a better understanding of who your son is, that they would understand how much you love them, how just you are, how you have not abandoned them, how you have not forsaken them, how you have continued to surround them and protect them, and that one day soon, yes, very soon, you will return and vindicate them. Give them the strength to continue to hold on, uh, to live well, to honor you. And Lord, for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing immense persecution, immense suffering as well, Lord, I pray for the same thing for them. Lord, may they come to a deeper understanding today as they gather in worship to understand who you are. May they come to a deeper appreciation, Lord, for what you have done. And Lord, that that would impact that church so profoundly, Lord, that that would impact their enemies around them, those who persecute them so profoundly that they could not help but look at look to you as a source of hope. Look to you as the source uh, of all that is right in the world and that that would change the world. Lord, may the hope of your gospel go into those dark places today. We pray for ISIS. We pray for the other governments in the world that are persecuting Christians. Lord, may they see your son. May they understand what they are doing. May they repent. And for the rest of us in this room, Father, we recognize that we, we're fortunate and we don't suffer today. And we, we thank you 
for that, but we also recognize that the world around us is changing and we don't mean this out of fear. We don't mean this out of, out of whining, but we mean this as a sense of, Lord, we need to prepare for it and we need your help to prepare for it. Lord, we desire to honor you uh, in all of our conversations. We desire to honor you at our work, desire to honor you at Christmas dinner. We desire to honor you with our neighbors. Lord, give us the wisdom, give us the understanding to be able to say, to, to know how to speak your hope of the gospel into those dark situations. But most of all, Father, I pray that you fill all of our minds with a deep reverence for who you are, that we would not take you lightly, that we would recognize your son is king and that we, he deserves absolute obedience and worship and awe. Lord, may you be honored today as we sing these songs. Lord, may you be honored today as we offer these gifts of offering. Lord, may you take them and multiply them exponentially so that your kingdom will continue to expand here on earth. And Lord, as we prep uh, our hearts in this next time of reflection, Lord, just help us to be open to you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we pray all of this Father, in your Son's precious, powerful, and holy name. Amen.